Well, let's go to God once more in prayer before we go to his word. Let's pray. Fathers, we come before you now in your word. We pray that your spirit would help us to hear from you. That we would see Jesus with the eyes of faith and be changed by your word. Because your word is truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Real quick, before I begin, is that fan distracting? Can you guys hear okay up there? Okay, great. What does your life say about what you believe? To believe anything, to follow anyone, there must be trust. You don't listen to those you don't trust. You don't, you don't want to imitate those you don't trust. So who or what we trust will end up shaping our lives. And sometimes it's our, our functional beliefs, you know, the, the shape of our lives, that actually reveal who or what we're really trusting in. So you can tell me all day long that you believe planes can fly. But if you refuse to get on one and fly anywhere, well, I, I struggle with believing that you actually believe they can fly. At least not entirely. It might be that you think it's highly unlikely that plane will crash. You accept that. But just the possibility can make fear more powerful. And that emotion, perhaps deeply embedded in your heart, can actually make you believe that it's better to stay on the ground. Heart issues like that raise the question of how anyone can actually change their mind. But suffice to say, a change of mind, in this case, when the, when the heart is involved, would require an even greater trust in someone or something else. Powerful enough to overcome the issues of our hearts like fear and control or love and hate. You see, there's a great deal that goes into who we're able to learn from or follow. So again, what does your life say about who or what you really believe? And just as important, what's the final outcome of those beliefs when your life is over? That question helps us answer what we really need in a teacher and what we really need from their example. And in today's passage, God's word, God himself, is pointing us to his son, Jesus, for these things. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to John chapter 1, verse 29. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you can find that on page 976. 976. And if you're new to the Bible, the large bold numbers are the chapters. The smaller numbers are the verses, and today we're looking at chapter 1, verse 29 through 51. Last week, we were introduced to John the Baptist. And everyone believes that he's a prophet. 
And they want to actually they want to know whether or not he's actually the Messiah. That's the person that God promised would would come with God's power and deliver his people and rule over them as king. Well, John says he's not. And then he points everyone to someone greater. Take your focus off me and get ready for him. That was last week. Well, verse 29, the next day, based on the Spirit's testimony about Jesus, John declares he's the Lamb of God. Then in verse 35, again, the next day, based on John's testimony, Andrew declares to Peter, we found the Messiah. Then in verse 43, the next day, Philip tells Nathanael about Jesus, and Nathanael ends up declaring, you are the Son of God. So that's the structure of our text here. We have three different days, three different testimonies, and three declarations that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So here's what John's so intent on having us do with this text. Believe the testimony about Jesus and follow him. Believe the testimony about Jesus and follow him. And if you're taking notes to help you listen and follow along, we're going to break up the passage on these three different days and look at these three different testimonies and their call to action regarding Jesus. So first, believe. So verses 29 through 35, believe. Second, follow. Verses 36 through 42. And finally, worship. Verses 43 through 51. Based on the testimony about Jesus, believe, follow, worship. So first, believe. Look at chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. Now, again, the day before, John's pleading with people to take their eyes off him and focus on the one greater than him, the one who's coming. And the next day, Jesus comes and John proclaims, here he is, the Lamb of God. Now, that probably doesn't land on us with the same force as it did on John's day. It's not the same kind of loaded term for us as it was for a Jewish crowd. For example, if we were at a sporting event together right now, and I said, look, the goat of all goats. Well, that's a, that's a loaded term for us. You know, a string of athletes might suddenly run through our mind to give us a sense of who it is we're looking at. Michael Jordan, Tom Brady, Babe Ruth, Simone Biles, the greatest of all time in their respective sports. But this, this is the greatest athlete of greatest athletes. When John proclaims this person is the Lamb of God, the biblically minded Jew would have been awestruck 
with a string of lambs that may have ran through their mind. After the curse of death entered the world, and God mercifully preserved life and started working his plan of redemption, Abel presented a sacrificial lamb on his behalf. And life goes on. When Abraham's called to sacrifice his son as a, as a test of his faith in the promises of God, God provides a sacrificial ram in Abraham's son's place. When God saves his people out of Egypt, they're instructed to sacrifice a lamb and, and, and paint its blood upon their doorstep so that the angel of death will pass over them and they're delivered from slavery. When they enter into the promised land and God gives them his law, it's the sacrificial offering of an unblemished animal that allows unclean sinners to to worship God in the temple. And the general symbol for that sacrifice over time becomes a lamb. Later, after Israel rebels against God and is forced back into slavery, the prophet Isaiah prophesies of God's suffering servant in Isaiah 53 who comes to deliver God's people by bearing their sorrows, sickness, and sin. And he does so by being led as a silent lamb to the slaughter, where God crushes him in order to forgive his people from their sins. And so when John says, Look, here he is, the Lamb of God. He's saying, this man can take away your sins. This is why the author wants us to believe in Jesus. He tells us at the end of this gospel, this is why I'm writing. It's so that we can find life in Him. To know and enjoy God rather than to suffer under His judgment for our spiritual rebellion. Jesus is God in the flesh. And so He can serve for us as a perfect substitute Because he's a person like us also. And in love for us, he does. He sacrifices his own life on the cross, bearing our sin and the wrath of God in our place. So that by trusting in him, we can be united to him and in God's sight made perfect. And we know this because God raised him from the dead. One of the reasons you should trust in Jesus is because the historical evidence of the empty tomb all points to the truth of the resurrection. And if Christ is said to take away away the sin of the world, then why can't he take away yours? And if you're here today believing Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away your sin, well then that belief must penetrate your heart enough so that you put away your sin. Otherwise, being a Christian will look like someone who believes planes can fly, yet refuses to get on one. True saving faith is a repenting faith. It's possible to be here a religious person with knowledge of the Bible, just like the religious people listening to John, and still not see Jesus. But with the Spirit's help, you can. God wants to reveal His Son. Remember, the day before this, John told the religious leaders there in verse 26, someone stands among you, but you don't know Him. 
But then in God's sovereignty, the next day, John sees Jesus and proclaims, there he is. And then he says in verse 31, I didn't know him. Now, John probably did have some knowledge of Jesus. They were cousins. But he had no other way of knowing Christ in this way, except by divine revelation. He needed God to testify. The only way to know Jesus in this way, as the pre-existent Lamb of God, is if God reveals himself this way. And that's why John says he came baptizing with water. It's so that Jesus might be revealed. And so that we believe him, John tells us how God revealed this. Verse 32. And John testified... I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. The word watched here, I watched the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on him. That word is is used in terms of settled conviction. This is like John saying, I know what I saw. Right? Call me crazy. You can tell me that all day. I know what I saw. There's no way of convincing him differently. And then he reiterates in verse 33. I didn't know him, but he who sent me, God the Father, told me. The one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Spirit. Now, that's a significant testimony. We should trust John's testimony because it's from God. And if you can't trust God, then who can you trust? But his testimony is also significant because of who's it about. Twice, we're told, the Spirit rests on Jesus. Now, in the Old Testament, the Spirit would come upon judges and kings to empower them for specific tasks... But then he'd he'd leave. The Spirit here is said to remain on Jesus. He remains with him. And whereas John baptizes with water, Jesus baptizes with the Spirit. So his baptism is greater. This is greater than John. Water baptism was a cleansing ritual used to bring unclean Gentiles into the community of God's people as a way of renouncing the the worship of the false gods of this world. So they would would come and submit themselves to the true God of Israel. And that's a big deal. But that was with water. And it was entirely symbolic. Jesus baptizes with the Spirit, and it's effective for changing hearts. God's promise in Ezekiel 36 is that one day... He'd put his spirit within people so that they would love and obey him from the heart. It's not just a a mental belief that he gives us, but also a functional one. Mind and heart that shapes our lives. And that happens through faith in Jesus. The spirit works in us to renew us and bring us into the kingdom of God. That's why whenever we read about someone believing in Christ and repenting of their sins in the book of Acts, they're baptized. Baptism and faith go together as God's newly created people turn from their sin and live for Christ because of who he is and what he's done. 
And so, based on the testimony of the Holy Spirit and the very words of God the Father, John has both seen with his eyes and heard with his ears, and so proclaims, verse 34, I have seen and testified that he is the Son of God. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, we're really glad you're here, and and I understand that, that you might be very skeptical. How do we know that John really saw the Spirit rest on Jesus or, or heard a voice from heaven say, you know, this, this is my son? People lie all the time. How do we know that John's not making this up? Well, people usually have a, a very good reason. Well, not a good reason, but they usually have a reason to lie. John has nothing to gain. He's already living a life of poverty. This isn't going to make him rich. In fact, he's already under heat from the king in Jerusalem. Even the religious leaders are against John. This is only going to make things worse. In fact, John will end up in prison and beheaded for his ministry. So you have to decide whether or not you have more reason to believe or disbelieve his testimony based on the evidence. And I encourage you to just keep reading about the signs that this gospel gives us in order that we might see the truth about Jesus. After all, the the author, John, different John, is, is an eyewitness of all these things. And he was willing to die for it himself. Because eternity hangs in the balance, according to this message. And if you'll take an honest look at the evidence, then you'll see it's strongly in favor of it all being true, especially as you consider the resurrection of Christ. And if you have any questions about that, I would love to talk to you afterwards. But the author's point here is that the the first testimony about Jesus comes from God the Spirit and God the Father about the Son to John the Baptist. And so now, John bears witness. And that brings us to the call to action, the second one. Believe and then follow. Follow. Look at verse 35. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. Now just note here in verse 35, they're his disciples. It's John's disciples. So the text doesn't suggest in any way that that John's disciples are abandoning him, or that John expected them to. No, clearly, John understands that that part of his mission is to lead them to follow someone else. Because he sees Jesus passing by, and he says, Look, the Lamb of God. And since his disciples trust him, verse 37, they heard him say this and followed Jesus. Now, that's incredibly humble of John and a good example of what every Christian and church should strive to imitate. It's not about you or me, and it's not about Grace Harbor. It's about Christ. And so whether people visit, stay, or leave here, our goal isn't to make it about ourselves or about this particular building or ministry, but about Christ. Now, to be clear, I want people to stay. As I've said before, I hope to do some of your funerals. Not because I want to get rid of you, you know. 
But because I, I want the, the richness of having, having spent the rest of our days together. I think oftentimes we underestimate what God can do through our life together over the course of 20 or 30 years. And we vastly overestimate how God's going to use this church in our lives just in one to five years. So I would love to follow Jesus with you to the grave if the Lord wills. But it's not about me. And it's not about this church. It's about Jesus. That's why this pulpit is front and center in the church. It's why I, I stand behind the Bible as I, as I preach to you. What we do here isn't something about what I'm saying, but about what God has said. In fact, that's why we regularly have someone else preach here on Sunday mornings and almost every Sunday night. Because the only person this church is about is Jesus. And so we care much more about building an appetite for his word among our church than for any one person, any preacher of that word. So we must remember this as a church, especially as we disciple one another. Discipling is hard work. And it's easy to make it about us. Especially when we're discipling someone who's slow in making progress. Or too quickly to take steps backwards. It's tempting in those moments to be frustrated and bitter with the disciple-making process. But it's not about us. It's about that person's joy in Christ and the glory of Christ. And so as, as you spend time with one another, enjoy the fellowship, but make sure Christ is the center of it. Build one another up in the faith and pray for one another in order that we all keep our eyes on Jesus Not the church, not the pastor, not one another, but him. That's what we see here in this text. It's what we see John encouraging his disciples to do. And so look what happens next in verse 38. When Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, what are you looking for? Now that's a funny picture. Kind of gives us a sense that these two guys are are, are creeping on Jesus. Not quite sure how to start following him. But just notice here that if you seek Christ, he's not the kind who's going to turn you away. He turns towards them and he asks, what are you looking for? That's such a good, penetrating question. Going deep to the heart. And so it's a good question to ask yourself. If you don't know what you're looking for in life, then you'll most likely pursue trivial stuff that that ends up in a junkyard or something else that doesn't last. And those that you follow will be those that have those things or those that can give you those things. We're all disciples of someone, being told what to believe and shown where to find life, even if that message sounds something like believe in yourself or follow your heart. So if you call yourself a Christian, it's good to ask yourself, why? What am I seeking? We don't want to assume that because we've said a prayer or because we believe certain truths, we have great doctrine, that suddenly we're following Jesus for all the right reasons. Our hearts are so deceitful. Why do you gather with God's people on Sundays? Because you have to? What are you really doing as a Christian this week? 
How does the gospel change your life? So that you can answer the question, why do you spend, why do I spend my money the way I do? Or talk the way I do? Or work the way I do? Do you understand who Jesus is? How the gospel must penetrate your heart, soul, and life so that you're really following Jesus. Listen, an awakened soul who sees Jesus as the Son of God is under a holy compulsion of desires for God. That kind of soul can't live as the world does. That kind of heart has a, has a different set of goals. It's all about the kingdom of God. And so a Christian is convicted of sin, they confess sin, and they seek to live in freedom from sin. The Christian joyfully sacrifices the treasures of this world to store up treasures in heaven. The Christian lives to know Jesus more, to have eternal life, to, to know Him and the Father. So look at how they respond in verse 39 to his question, what are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and you'll see, he replied. So they went and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day. It's kind of a weird response, right? They look even more creepy. (laughs) What are you looking for? Where are you staying? But the question is is really about where are you abiding? It's a way of saying we want to attach ourselves to you, to abide with you, to, to learn from you. And the way people are at home is usually the most true way we are. It's who we really are. The home is the domain where where we where we bring our rule into our own little world. So it's, it's the true self that's exposed and seen in the way that you live at home. So a true disciple wants to be in the home of their teacher. Where do you live is a way of saying, teach us about your life. That's why hospitality can be such a valuable gift and service to the church. It's, it's great for evangelism, but also discipleship. Opening your home is one of the best ways to disciple others. That's where you can really make your life look like glass to someone else. And you just let them see your life, the good and the bad. Okay, Neither neither your life or your home needs to be perfect in order to disciple someone. Paul could say, imitate me as I imitate Christ, but not as he doesn't. And while a clean house can be hospitable, it's a good thing. It doesn't always need to be spotless, especially, especially if it's not always spotless. You know, oftentimes that perfect standard will keep us from being hospitable and therefore keep us from from discipling effectively. The the main thing that we want people to see is our lives. Young parents and future parents need to see the older parents in this church around their kids, in their home. Young husbands need to see godly husbands and fathers. Many people would like to see what a family devotion looks like. What does serving the family look like? Even handling conflict in a godly way look like. 
Being in someone's home is a powerful tool for discipleship. And in a world that's so broken like ours, there are many people in the church that are looking for a different picture than the one that they were given. A house key can be a powerful expression of love. And I'm just, I want to say, I'm so encouraged by the way people in this church have done this. And many of us are doing it whether or not we know it. Parents, do you think about living with your kids as one of the main ways you disciple them? You're always discipling. You're always teaching. And kids, you should just listen up here. i got some potentially scary news. Hopefully it's still good news, but it's scary. There's a good chance that you one day you're going to grow up and be just like your parents. In part because you've got their makeup. But also because living with them, you're picking up their habits and their values, their, their way of life. And people just end up being like what they see and what they're around. That's why these disciples want to be around Jesus. It's why they want to know where he's staying. They want to follow him. I mean, they want to live with him so that they can learn from him and become like him. So parents, who... Or what are you teaching your children what life's all about? If it's all about Jesus, you want them to hear that. You also want them to see that. And not just them, but your friends and family. Like John the Baptist, we have a testimony we must proclaim. And that's what these new disciples do. Verse 40. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother was one of the two who heard John and followed him. He first found his brother Simon and told him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought Simon to Jesus. When Jesus saw him, he said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. We're introduced for the first time to Andrew, who is Simon Peter's brother. Talk about living in your brother's shadow. Peter's obviously a huge figure in the early church. He's well known to John's readers. But if Andrew is being introduced that way before Peter even shows up, that's kind of a knock on Andrew, right? Like, how insignificant must I be if you introduce me to your friend by referencing someone else your friend doesn't know yet? Like, this is Kevin, Scott's brother. Who's Scott? He's a guy. When you meet him, you'll like Kevin. Like it's, it's just it's just that insignificant, right? But here's what I love about Andrew, and that's significant for the text today. The most significant thing about Andrew is that every time he's mentioned in the Bible alone, sort of apart from the rest of the disciples, he's always bringing someone to Jesus. We don't read about the exchange here. There's, there's, there's nothing here about Andrew being skilled in convincing Peter of the truth about Jesus. We just read, and he brought Simon to Jesus. It's the same thing when Andrew brings the, the young boy with the fish, when, when Jesus is feeding the 5,000. He, he brings the boy. It's, it's kind of a crazy thing. Like, why bother, Andrew? There's 5,000 people here. The boy only has a few fish. And Andrew just brings him to Jesus. It's like, that's his problem. Let him figure that out. When it comes to our witness, that's really all we want people to see anyway. It's not about us. 
We're trying to help them see Jesus. And in this case, don't you love Andrew's excitement? It's the first thing he does. Jesus is that significant. He runs to find his brother and tells him, we have found the Messiah. So isn't what we read about Andrew even more significant in God's eyes than what we typically find significant today? This would be a wonderful legacy to have. What was so-and-so like? Oh, well, they were always wanting to tell people about Jesus. They always had a guest with them at church. Wouldn't that tell you a lot about that person, even if we heard nothing else? What a wonderful way to be remembered. I was thinking this morning about uh, Holly Fournier's uh, father's funeral, Pete. I never met Pete. But it sounded like Pete was a lot like this. And I left loving Pete. And I think when we get to heaven, it will be people like that who are the most significant in our eyes, or who had the most, lived the most significant lives. It will be Uber drivers and business owners and street sweepers that took every opportunity they could to talk about Christ or simply to make life all about Him. And so on this second day, based on the testimony of John about Jesus, Andrew proclaims to his brother, we found the Messiah. And that's how Peter comes to encounter Jesus. And when he does, Jesus looked at him with a penetrating look and saw him, not for what he was at that moment, but for what he would become. I say that because Peter had plenty of blunders. He waffles towards the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. But then he became a rock for the early church. When Jesus saw Peter, he really saw him, and Peter began to take on a new name. Following Jesus tends to have that effect on us. By God's gracious work of his Spirit in us, we become like him. We become the very people that Jesus created us to be. Which is why we shouldn't just follow him, but worship him. And that brings us to the final call to action. Worship him. Look at verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph, from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathanael asked him. Come and see, Philip answered. It's the third day here. And notice that when Jesus found Philip... And calls Philip to follow him. Philip then finds Nathanael. Disciples make disciples. So like John, like Andrew, Philip is now the one bearing witness to Christ. And here's what he testifies. We found the one Moses wrote about in the law and so did the prophets. Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. We found the one that all the prophets in our scriptures spoke of. Can you imagine? And then he describes a very normal person. The son of Joseph from Nazareth. And so Nathaniel's skeptical. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Again, Nazareth was a small and insignificant town with no prophecy written about it. 
But Nazareth is also just four miles from Nathaniel's hometown. It's the, it's the cross-town rival. So there's a bit of distaste for it as well. So as a Friars fan, this would be kind of like Yukon. Nazareth is like Yukon. And someone's suggesting that you've got to meet this great guy. He graduated from Yukon. And you think, really? Can anything good come out of Yukon? We're still trying to figure that out. No? But I love Philip's response. Just come and see. Just come and see. There's something about Jesus that makes Philip say, you'll see. Doesn't need to argue with him. Doesn't need to to make a deal. Come up with some way to make Jesus more inviting. Just says, come and see for yourself. And I think that's a really, that's really encouraging for our own personal witness. First of all, both Andrew and Philip boldly proclaim who Jesus is. They, they talk about Jesus. There's no slick strategy or, or even beating around the bush here. They just speak out of their own conviction and excitement. But secondly, it reminds me of how powerful the body of Christ is on earth. And wanting to bring people to Jesus. Don't forget about the body of Christ. Invite them to our church and and let them see our gathering. Not because we're putting on a great show for them. uh, Because in that case, we're not that impressive compared to the world. But our community is a community of love with the the word of God. It's, It's unique because the spirit is here. God's word and the good news about Jesus is all over our service. So this is a great place to hear the gospel but also see the effects of believing the gospel. A whole body of people make it harder to write off your own personal testimony about Jesus. Nathaniel's about to find it impossible. Look at verse 47. Then Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said about him, Here truly is an Israelite in in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Rabbi, Nathanael replied, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus responded to him, do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then he said, truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. What Jesus says about Nathanael in verse 47 is quite something. Here is a true Israelite. No deceit is in him. That's that's purposeful. And it stands out because before the patriarch Jacob became known as Israel, he had plenty of deceit in him. The, The original Israelite was a man known for his tricks. But there's no deceit in this Israelite, Nathanael. No guile. He just, he is who he is. I think that may be what you see in verse 48. Uh, Most of us might naturally respond to Jesus' words. "Uh, Who, me? I don't know about that, Jesus, but okay. But Nathaniel's like, yeah, that's me. You've got your man. And he just says what he thinks. He's, He's a man of no guile. 
But more importantly, I think behind that comment, Nathaniel obviously senses something. So he asks, how do you know me? And Jesus answers, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, we don't know what Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree, but it's a sign of spiritual prosperity and peace in the Old Testament. And therefore, it became a common place where the scribes would study God's law. This is where they would read his word. And something here suggests that Nathaniel had some kind of spiritual experience with God there that only God could know about. In fact, there's no way that Jesus, apart from God, could know that Nathaniel was under that fig tree. Because Jesus is calling out to him as he's coming towards him. So, Jesus reveals his omniscience to Nathaniel. Whatever happened under that fig tree, whatever he was thinking about, Jesus saw him. Kind of like he saw Peter. And now Nathaniel sees Jesus. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Nathaniel gets it right away. He's a righteous man looking for the Messiah with no deceit in him. And right away, he tells it like it is. And so on this third day, through Philip's witness, Nathaniel's coming to experience the goal that John has for us in this gospel. He believes and proclaims that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the King of Israel. Now, it's great that Nathaniel sees this. But his, his faith is obviously immature at this point. Not that it's not genuine, but it's a bit shallow because Jesus himself points this out in verse 50. You believe because I saw you under a fig tree. That's nothing. You haven't seen anything yet. And then Jesus pulls back the spiritual veil for all of us. The you in verse 51 turns plural all of a sudden. You all will see more. And it comes with an emphatic statement. Truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And with that statement, Jesus takes everybody back thousands of years to an event that we read about in Genesis 28. It's the passage we read earlier in the service. In Genesis 28, Jacob who becomes Israel, has just deceived Esau. He's stolen his birthright. And he's tricked his father Isaac into blessing him instead of Esau. And so in fear for his life, he's on the run. And after a long day of running, he stops in a valley and falls asleep upon the rocks. And scoundrel that he is, deceitful guy that he is, God still speaks to him. God loves him and reveals himself to him in a vision. And this is what Jacob sees in Genesis 28:12. And he dreamed a stairway was set on the ground with its top reaching the sky and God's angels were going up and down on it. And at that point God made promises to Jacob just like he had made promises to Abraham. Jacob all alone Just him and God got to see the spiritual realities that we can't see with our own spiritual or with our own physical eyes. And so when he wakes up, he he says in verse 16, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. 
He was afraid and said, what an awesome place this is. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So it looked like he was in a place just just full of rocks. He thought he was all alone. But no, God was with him. Heaven had come down. Now notice in verse 51, there's no stairway. It's just Jesus that the angels are ascending and descending on. Jesus is the stairway. He's the connection between heaven and earth. He is God with us. And he attaches to himself the title of the Savior from Daniel 7. The Son of Man. The Son of Man in Daniel 7 is the one who's given authority of heaven and earth. And he has a whole army of angels surrounding him. And he's going to come down and judge the spiritual rebellion on earth and set up his everlasting kingdom. Now, put yourself in Nathaniel's shoes right here. It's staggering. He's just had a similar experience as the original Israelite, Jacob. He had no idea that God was with him there under that tree. He thought he was just sitting there under a fig tree. And it looks like there's just a person standing in front of him. But as he stands there looking at Jesus Christ, Jesus pulls back the spiritual veil and reveals to Nathaniel that he's looking at the gateway of heaven. He's in the presence of God. Jesus saw him, and now he sees Jesus. Like Jacob, Nathaniel could say, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. I wonder if that's your experience today. If you're not a Christian, I hope it is. I pray that the Spirit would open your eyes to see the truth about Jesus and that you would come to trust Him and follow Him. And you should pray for that. A big theme of this chapter is revelation. John didn't know Him, but the Spirit and the Father reveal Jesus to John. And then John came baptizing to reveal Jesus to others. And then John reveals Jesus to his disciples. And then Andrew shows up and shows Peter who Jesus is. Philip shows Nathaniel. And when Nathaniel didn't know or see, Jesus reveals himself. But we can't forget about the religious leaders. Jesus stood among them. And they still don't know him. And most of them in the Gospels never come to see him. It's tragic. He's right in front of them. He's right there. And they don't see that God is in this place. And it's all because of what's in their hearts. That's what Jesus will later say is the problem. Like the person who won't get on the plane... There are heart issues that keep us from believing and following. It's not all logic. It might be control over your life. It might be a love for certain sins. It could be pride. 
could be something else. The problem isn't Jesus. The problem's not the testimony. It's the heart. So pray for help. Church, it's a reminder that it's only by God's grace that we believe. And since we do see, let's worship Christ with our eyes wide open to the spiritual realities in this place. The Spirit of Christ is here, and He has joined us together. He's with us. God is with us today. So sing as if Christ is here. Pray as if He's hearing and working through those prayers. Listen to His Word with an awareness of His presence and with the attention that God Himself gives His Word. Know that we are citizens of heaven and that this is our embassy on earth. I sometimes even think of the spiritual war that must be taking place within these walls and outside these walls as we prepare in the mornings to come here or maybe even on Saturday night and throughout the week and then as we gather in this place and then as we leave this place. That's precisely why we try to make our services so word-centered with so much scripture reading and prayer with a, with a mix of both joy And seriousness. God is in this place. And we're here to worship His Son. But what about when you leave this place? Who or what do you worship? That question brings us back to the questions we began with. Because worship is the shape of our lives. So who do you trust to give you life? Who you trust, who you follow, shapes us. But it's all about worship. And when it comes to Jesus, we can follow Him because He's from God. He is God. And He's everything we need. Let's pray. God, we pray that with your Spirit's help, we, we would believe your word. That we would believe this testimony. And that from our hearts, we would live lives for the glory of Christ. That he would be our glory. And so, God, we, we pray that you would do this work in our hearts and minds now. And we would leave committed to live that way. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.